Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates. Alas, how many are found who boast of the gospel and speak, teach, and preach much about it, but are full of hatred and envy? They do not have the love of God in them, and their deceit is known to all the world. They hate the pious on the earth and obstruct the way to life and to the true shepherd. These are the words of Felix Mons, a early Anabaptist. And today, we are here at This Week in Church History, and we're going to be talking about a critical debate that happened on January 17, 1525, between Zwingli and Mons about the nature of baptism. Uh, As we talked last time, listeners, uh, Dr. McMullen is out on sabbatical, and so I am joined in our episode this week by Dr. Stephen Ecker, the Associate Professor of Church History and Reformation Studies at uh, our sister seminary, Southeastern Baptist Theological uh, Seminary. Uh, Dr. Ecker has a PhD from St. Andrews, and uh, is very prolific in the realm of Reformation studies. He has some chapters forthcoming in the Oxford Handbook for the Bible and the Reformation, uh, another volume, uh, another chapter in Historical Theology for the Church. He's also a co-author of the forthcoming Handbook of Theology for the People of God. You can often find him with the hashtag, I love the Reformation on all types of social media platforms. Uh, Dr. Ecker, welcome back to This Week in Church History. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Anytime we can talk the Reformation, I'm like a nine-year-old on Christmas morning. <laughs> and that's a great thing, great way to feel about uh, the Reformation. God did some amazing things through there. Before we jump into our, our topic, uh, you got to write in the Historical Theology for the Church volume. Uh, I have a chapter in there as well. What, what chapter did you work on for that? Uh, historical theology for the church. Uh, I got to address the uh, docile and non-controversial issue of the doctrine of salvation in the Reformation era. <laughs> yeah, that that Not wasn't a lot going on. Yeah, there. that wasn't contested at all. Uh, yeah, no. uh, that I'm looking forward to reading that. I haven't seen your chapter, um, and I look forward to doing that. I got to do anthropology uh, in the uh, the 19th and 20th century, so not like we were struggling with that either. No, not at all. <laughs> so uh, our our event that we're going to be talking about for this week in church history takes place uh, on a very snowy January 17th uh, in 1525. And really what started out, I think, is just kind of an academic exercise. We're going to debate the nature of baptism. Can you set the the kind of the 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 tone for us. What's really going on in a debate over baptism that we would even care about that uh, so many years on? Yeah, so really this is the culmination of nearly a year and a half of discussions about all sorts of things uh, related to reforms of the church, whether you're talking about uh, abolishing the mass, the use of images. They're even having conversations about when Jesus says to pray like this and then offers the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, are we only allowed to pray that prayer, or mm. can we expand pray beyond just the rote words of that? So what's, what's lively in these discussions is people are taking very seriously the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, but then the question comes in, really— how far are we going to take our reforms, mm-hmm. and how quickly are we going to get there? Mm. And so over the course of 
of a little little less than a year and a half, uh, there is discussions between Zwingli and really his his students in the faith. These are his 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 sons in the faith, men like Felix Mons, Conrad Grebel, uh, and others who begin to really start to press him on going further and faster than he would like to go on these issues. Mm. Now, in fact, this debate uh, that will come up at uh, the beginning of, of, of uh, 1525 uh, was specifically about the question of infant baptism. So they haven't really even begun to parse out questions about adult baptism. That's coming, but this is more a question of the nature of uh, infant baptism. Is this valid? Is this something that we should be doing? Uh, and again, all of this is, is rooted in this larger conversation of reforming the Swiss Church outside mm-hmm. at, from the authority of the Roman Catholics. Uh, and at the core of it is, how are we going to appropriate the teachings of Scripture? How are we going to interpret what the Bible says? Uh, and therein really lied the rub. Yeah, so this idea of wrestling over these tangible aspects of the faith, uh, whether it's um, uh, the Lord's Supper or baptism, uh, these ecclesial outworkings of the faith uh, that we see that are that are in Scripture, that are prescribed in Scripture, even as uh, visible re- representations of the gospel, right? That we get to see the gospel. Uh, communicated as we take the Lord's Supper. We get to see the gospel communicated when we, we see baptism. Um, mm-hmm. these, these individuals, as they're wrestling with this, this came to mean quite a lot. Now, I know that you have friends who are part of other denominations, uh, some that are pedo baptist and for our listeners, that basically means somebody who's in a tradition that uh, baptizes infants, or those who are credo baptist which would be those who baptize by profession of faith. Um, we often will coexist uh, relatively well and easily within our Western context. Why are they fighting over this? Why are they making it such a big deal? Uh, it's just when someone's getting baptized, right? Well, it is a rather large deal on two fronts. One really has to do with the question of authority. Um, what, what you've got here is you have a, a state church it's functioning with a baptism that is interconnected with one's participation, not just with the church, but with society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the questions comes in very early on, even in the early 1520s, Zwingli questions the validity of infant baptism based upon the text of Scripture, but once you get to the end of 1523, he's unwilling to push for a move away from that specifically because, and with other issues, the authority of the government is not ready to move forward. One of the things that that we have with Zwingli uh, is really a slower pace in terms of reform, largely as a political and a pastoral concession. One of the things that Zwingli says is he'd rather wait, for instance, he'd rather have the preaching of the gospel rightly from the pulpits and observing the Roman mass until the the people in whole, in totality, were ready to actually receive 
this new type of supper, this this move away from the the Roman Eucharist. He'd rather have this done in a large uh, across the board scale, as opposed to, as he says, people in the corners of the region observing the Roman mass. Mm. Again, trying to move slowly, almost as an argument for the, the, the weaker brother and sister to, to go slowly and to go at their speed and with the authorities' uh, ultimate uh, authorization. His students, however, <laughs> who he's taught to love the Bible, to believe the Bible, to see that this is God's authoritative word, we obey the Bible because it's God's commands to us. They want to move much quicker because they see the authority of God in Scripture as superseding that of the authority of humanity in the Council's mandates. And so this is where some of this divide comes in terms of the question of, uh, of really authority. But the other issue, and this, this mm. is what's going to really push to the theological crux of this, by the time you get to the beginning of 1525, this group, and we know this from a, a letter that, that, that Conrad Grebel and, and, his, uh, and his friends like Felix Mons have sent to another German reformer named Thomas Munzer, mm-hmm. we know that they're starting to ponder and think about a believer's church, a church made up of regenerate followers of Christ, what does a what is a believer's church as opposed to a territorial state church? What might that look like in this context? What might that have uh, as a baptism? What might the supper look like for this? So as they're moving towards this, this isn't just a matter of authority. Mm-hmm. It's also a matter of a totally different understanding of the nature of the church, one that is a regenerate pure church, one that is a territorial state church that is admittedly mixed, the regenerate and the reprobate side by side. And that that cannot be underplayed when we think through uh, really what is driving uh, so much of the questions, so many of the concerns uh, that they have for their, their world, their day, um, again, in trying to be as biblical as possible as they're wrestling with this ecclesiology, their, their doctrine of the church, uh, it's not just the nature of baptism. It is tied with this idea of who should be included. Can we have um, that, that state-sanctioned thing, or does it have to be by profession? Now, on the, this, in this debate that happens uh, uh, here that we're, we're talking about on January 17. Um, what, what comes out of that? Uh, it's, it, it, it doesn't necessarily go real well. Um, what, what begins to happen culturally in society uh, as a result of that debate? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Most of these debates don't think of them as kind of like a neutral two parties coming together, free floating discussion and dialogue. These are very public, uh, in terms of, uh, the scope of who they're, they're being held before, uh, but they're also almost always predetermined. <laughs> right. So the, so the Anabaptists here, in many respects, know that they're not going to win this debate. The decision has already been made, but it does give them a chance to kind of uh, elucidate more of their position 
on the nature of the church and specifically why they don't like infant baptism. So, for instance, just a couple of points that are very important. So when they look to the New Testament specifically, which is exactly what Zwingli taught them to do, Uh what they see in the New Testament is that they see that that the notion of faith uh, is required for baptism. And so a, a child really has no way of expressing faith, no way of uh, understanding and responding to the gospel. So there's already an issue there. Secondarily, uh, the the Anabaptists are starting to think very deeply at this point about the idea of covenant, yeah. the notion of covenanting with others, uh, gathering around a a consensus of belief and caring. Uh, one of uh, one of our colleagues at a, at a sister seminary, Southwestern Seminary, Malcolm Yarnell, has written a lot about the Anabaptists as really the ones who were talking about covenant before some of the Reformed people like Zwingli, Bullinger, Calvin, and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they see a covenanting commitment as requiring the ability to acknowledge that commitment one to another. And a child simply doesn't have the ability, the, the cognitive ability to, to do that. And then as well, just looking at the text, they just don't see anywhere in the New Testament where there is an explicit, clear indication of a child being baptized. Even later on right. when they're asked questions about the household baptisms in Acts, so the text is really ambiguous there. If anything, the text says those who believed were baptized in those households. Mm-hmm. And so they're really pushing for these, these questions of uh, can a child uh, commit themselves in these ways? And their conclusion is they cannot. So you're using a word here that some of our listeners may have heard, but they don't necessarily understand. You, you, you've talked about Anabaptist. What is an Anabaptist? Uh, help our listeners kind of understand and unpack that just a little bit before we move on. Yeah, it's very. I'm super thankful that you brought this up. So Anabaptism, saying Anna as an A and A, it's not anti-Baptist like we're opposed to Baptists. Uh, Anabaptist is basically uh, an English version of a Latinized Greek term that means again baptized or rebaptized. Mm-hmm. And the reason why this comes up is if you have a state church system going all the way back to, let's say, the fourth century of Constantine, people who were baptized as children, if you don't acknowledge that to be an authentic, real baptism, then you, when you commit yourself to a believer's baptism based upon a profession of faith, uh, an, an act of repentance, and a desire to walk in accordance with the commands of Scripture, that baptism then would against the backdrop of that state church context, that would be a second baptism. It's very similar to, mm-hmm. like, in our context of Baptist life, if you get a child that's baptized, let's say, at five, and then later on, maybe in middle school or high school or in college, they come to make a profession of faith, and then all of a sudden there's this crisis of, I need to be baptized again. I need to get my baptism on the right side of my of my, my right. conversion, that's in essence what we're talking about in that context. So it is, a, uh, it is really a term that is speaking about anyone who either questions infant baptism or believes in 
this regenerate believer's baptism that is to come. And so it is really a a complicated word contextually because not all Anabaptists from this period are the same. It's very much a pejorative term. Right. Uh, think of it like a term like the Puritans, the Separatists, the Methodists, terms that we use today. Those weren't the terms that those groups embraced. They were pejoratives right. that were thrust upon them. And so Anabaptist was dripping with sarcasm. It was a demeaning pejorative term uh, and used in a very wholesale way for anyone who deviated from this state church uh, position and the use of infant baptism. And consequently, that makes it difficult for those who are historians as well, because you'll find somebody who shows up in the record as being identified as an Anabaptist, and yet you find that they actually have a wide variety, those with that label have a wide variety of theological perspectives, some that are orthodox and some that are heterodox. And uh, so that that makes it a little bit more complex, even when we're reading the broader uh, narrative of the Reformation, of trying to even sift through and sort through who these uh, Anabaptist figures actually are. There's this really fascinating account in Bullinger's writing, uh, Zwingli's successor at Zurich, where he's railing against the Anabaptists. And he's talking about how the Anabaptists uh, are are too dependent upon the Spirit, that they're almost like spiritualists. They're not taking it all seriously, the mm-hmm. Word of God, that they need to follow what the Scriptures say. And then less than a year later, he's railing once again about the Anabaptists. He's saying they're following too stringently to the Word of God. They're not listening <laughs> to the Spirit of Scripture. They're following the letter of Scripture. And you're like, wait a second, Bullinger's a smart guy. What's going on here? He's talking about two different types two of different groups, groups yep. but without the historiography to actually delineate between the two, he doesn't know that there's multiple groups. For instance, the the notion of Anabaptists, you end up with this group who really uh, serve as the fountainhead for groups like the Mennonites and the Amish. They end up being non-resistant pacifists. There's right. another group in Germany, the town of Munster. They are instituting Old Testament laws like polygamy. And if you don't believe like us, we'll cut your head off. That's yep. not exactly <laughs> non-resistant. <laughs> but, all, but all, again, under the blanket label of Anabaptists. Luther would very famously use the term for these individuals as Schwarmer, yep. uh, the enthusiast. Uh, and so they don't, they're not they're using this term again as a very pejorative and they're not dis, they're not distinguishing between various groups that have radically different beliefs uh, in terms of their not only their theology, but even their authorities. So guys like Mons and Grable, really what they're trying to do is what we've been talking about, try to get back to a biblical understanding of. Uh, believer's baptism that then has a corollary in a believer's church. Uh, So that one, two uh, step there to get believer's baptism, believer's church, and the tie together there is what they're really after. Correct. So this is a debate that is on uh, January uh, 17th. And so uh, the the, just a few days later on January 21st is when they move what is a theoretical discussion about this believer's church and this rejection of infant baptism. They take the radical step then on January 21st of 1525 to institute uh, believer's baptism uh, when, uh, when Conrad Grebel baptized George Blaurock 
in the home of Felix Mons. So this is, it's for us when we think about a believer's baptism. We think, okay, this is this is interesting, but it's it's not uncommon for us, especially for us who are Baptists. But this is something that hasn't been done right for over a thousand years, mm-hmm. really, uh, roughly a thousand years, and so it is really a radical shift uh, and a radical departure from the historic norm. Though what this group is saying is we are actually recapturing the traditions and the practices of the New Testament church and the apostolic church from the first couple of centuries of the church's history. So as they set up this uh, event on the 21st, uh, are they doing that in the open? Are they doing that secretly? Is this something that uh, they really even kind of gave a thought to? It's just like, well, okay, we're just going to go do this. Yeah, well, there was initially an allowance for this group to meet for Bible studies and things of that sort. But the one thing that they were, that the state church was keen and adamant about was that they not move away from infant baptism. And so by now what you've started to get is you've got people who are interrupting sermons uh, where they're, where they're interrupting sermons about the issue of infant baptism. You have parents that are starting to withhold their newborn children from baptism. And then, of course, this step here to actually rebaptize, withholding your child from baptism and actually rebaptizing someone, those are two very different things. Yeah. And so for the state church, and they're very, they're very quick to make this connection, this idea of rebaptism for them is akin to the Donatist heresy of right. the early church that Augustine uh, argued against. But more specifically, and this really comes back to that political concession that Zwingli was making, his fear was that if you do away with the infant baptism, because the church and state are so intimately interwoven or wed together, you're going to destabilize society and the church, and you're going to do it at this crucial moment when, remember, we know the end of the story. They don't. They don't even know if Reformation Mm -hmm. will be viable at this moment. So again, this is a live question of how far are we going to go and how fast are we going to get there? Zwingli is much more conservative, much more closer to the vest in terms of his, his play here. His students, uh, Grable, Mons, these others, they're much more um, zealous, much more cavalier and ambitious. Uh, and they both, so at the end of the day, they both want to follow scripture. They both want to honor God, but their priority uh, is really directing them their action and in turn shaping their theologies, which are very much in flux and developing at this time. So, uh, you know, I, I think for both you and I, as we teach at different seminaries, we would often say that off, uh, many times our students uh, can be very zealous and uh, they, they want to act very quickly without possibly thinking through the ramifications. Is that what's going on? Are they acting so quickly and so rashly that they're not thinking through the ramifications of, uh, of their actions? I think there's a bit of that at play. Uh, but you could also say there's really a bit of that at play as well for Zwingli. He's not thinking mm-hmm. through the long-standing consequences of allowing the church to be interwoven with the state. Um, so really, at the end of the day, and I, there's there's so many parallels and overlaps with with our own context here. This is really a question of 
how are you ultimately going to understand and interpret these texts of scripture? And then how are you going to move forward in a way that is that is God honoring, that is ultimately about the proclamation of the gospel, uh, and, and so on. So, for instance, for each of them, you know, uh, the the text, for instance, of Matthew 18 is going to regularly come up of church discipline, and so both of them believe in the text, right? The, the it's right there, it's in the red letter of scripture. The question, though, comes in: you do have discipline, but there's nothing prescribed in terms of timing. So for this for this group, the Anabaptists, they believe in a believer's church, so the steps of church discipline would be undertaken very stringently, very strictly, and quickly, because they want to maintain the purity of the church, as opposed to Zwingli, he wants to honor that text, but he wants to be much more long-suffering. Let's go through those steps very slowly. And let's not disconnect people from the church where they're ultimately going to be able to hear the gospel proclaimed. They're the ones who need to hear the gospel. Let's walk slowly. Let's realize that this takes time. So you've got two different groups. They believe the Bible. They both adhere to the text, but they're interpreting it in different ways. And so, again, this, this oftentimes overlaps with what we've got going on uh, in, our own, in our own contemporary context. Mm. That's that's really interesting when we start thinking through how there there could be overlaps there, and maybe that's a a podcast for a future uh, day. Now, they they exercise baptism, believers' baptism on the twenty first, just a few days after this debate. They're convinced they know uh, that this is what they believe the Bible is teaching, and they're they're moving on those actions. Two years later, in January, what is the result of their actions in this uh, regard? Yeah, so two years later, on January 5th, 1527, uh, Felix Montz, who was a a student of Zwingli's, uh, a a son in the faith, Zwingli taught him uh, Greek, for instance, taught him his Greek and his Latin letters. Uh, He stands by and watches as uh, the council a formally executed uh, Mons uh, that in, in that cold January by uh, immersing him uh, into the Lamont River just outside of the church building uh, where these two men uh, shared time together and, and their studies. And so the execution itself uh, by drowning was pejoratively called by the authorities uh, Felix's second baptism, playing yep. off this idea of the rebaptism uh, and it shows you just how serious they took these charges but also at times how cold and how callous uh, they could be uh, in this and so uh, it really speaks of commitment and conviction both to Mont he's willing uh, to die for this uh, he was so persistent in this that he was unrelenting mm. uh, to the point of being a nuisance to the council. That's why they executed him. Uh, but also, it's it's very much about persistence and uh, deep abiding convictions for somebody like Zwingli. He believed so much that uh, what the Anabaptists were doing was going to destabilize and unsettle the changes. They were going to roll back the Reformation right. that he was unwilling at that point in time 
to to say anything. In fact, he actually supports the execution. It's one of those things. Think about heroes of the faith and these black marks, these awful instances, as we have to reconcile or try to reconcile uh, horrific actions uh, of watching uh, a, a, a professing Christian execute another professing Christian mm-hmm. for different beliefs. Yeah, it's it is such a um, just a, a powerful scene, and, and and having been there in Zurich uh, along the river, you, there's a plaque there erected now that you, where you can kind of see the spot where uh, this all supposedly took place, and you begin to picture the crowd gathered, and uh, and you, you see Mons, you can visualize Mons being strapped to the end of a pole, and the the whole process of you know dunking him under the water with this pole and holding him into the fast flowing very cold waters of the river but then even bringing him up and asking him to recant and um him refusing his mother on the sidelines um encouraging him do not recant do not recant all while they keep pressing him under the water until they eventually hold him under uh and he drowns and dies um that I don't know that that when they gathered uh, on the 21st of January to um, celebrate believers' baptism, that they necessarily thought that was the road that they were going to be on and would find themselves in just two years later. No, I don't think that they knew that that was where they were going, but I think they very quickly knew that that was a viable possibility. They didn't remember the, these. We look at them as setting up this separatist church. The reality is they were trying to reform the church from within. When that became, when that no longer became a viable possibility, that's when they broke away, founded a believer's church. And the more that they walked down that path, the more they faced persecution, opposition, were forced to worship in odd and strange ways, and to, to worship with this, this veil of, of, uh, of, of oppression the more that they realized that this that their beliefs were going to eventually cost them something. And we know that almost all of the leaders uh, faced imprisonment, uh, at times faced torture, and many of them ultimately were uh, were executed. But the more that they endured those heartaches, the more that they were comforted by the words of Jesus. And mm-hmm. so it's so fascinating to think about this group who took very seriously the text of Scripture. And so the more that they they read the Bible, the more they appropriated the ethic of Jesus, the more Jesus's words from, let's say, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are, are humble. Blessed are those uh, who are merciful, who are peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of of righteousness sacred right? these these are texts they know, but now, because of the experiences, they're texts that they that that resonate with them in a very real sense and tell them in their minds that they are on the right road. they are on they're following uh, christ they this is this is their way of picking up their cross and following following him. That's, that's, a, that's such an important thing for us to catch, that that is exactly what they were attempting to do. They were attempting to follow Christ. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll kind of close our, our time with this, uh, it is one of Mon's last charges to uh, his uh, followers 
was, was simply this, I will firmly adhere to Christ and trust in him who is acquainted with all my needs and can, del- and can deliver me out of it. And by it, he was meaning his uh, prison cir- uh, circumstance or his impending death. Um, such a good reminder for us that our ultimate trust is in Christ and it's in Christ alone. And we can hold to nothing else um, but that. Dr. Ecker, I really thank you so much for joining with us uh, for this conversation. We'll have to have you back again to talk about the Reformation uh, and another figure within the, the context of the Reformation. So thank you so much for joining with us. Listeners, you can uh, find some of Dr. Ecker's writings online. You can go to his uh, faculty page at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, where all of those are listed uh, for you and find those there. And uh, hopefully, uh, again, we will hear him again on This Week in Church History. So listener, thanks for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week on This Week in Church History. 